0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful- it's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus... Auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1951. And tell podcast. Tell podcast all. The movie, A Place in the Sun.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome to Unspooled.
1: Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson.
2: And I'm Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to figure out the 100 best movies of all time. And once we do, we are going to shoot that list into outer space. It's not a bit. This is not a joke. We are leaving that list for the aliens. And so far, Amy and I have 40 films on our list that we have culled down from the AFI top 100. And we are slowly going through our own version to find the other 60. Have we found any past the 40 yet, Amy? I don't even know if we have officially found any extra ones at this point.
1: Officially? Not with a gold star stamp, not with a first-class ticket to Pluto, but I would say we have contenders that are almost guaranteed a seat.
2: There are some strong contenders, and we should actually maybe at one point look at that and look at what we have, what we've done maybe after our next mini-series. miniseries. Uh, today we are talking about A Place in the Sun, but before we get into that, I will say that there's been a great response to our Groundhog Day episode. Um, someone sent me a clip that I just loved, and it was Harold Ramos talking about the response to the film. And he was saying that his producer friend called him up uh, the Sunday the, after the film had come out on that Friday and said that there were all these uh, Orthodox uh, Jews out in front of the theater, like uh, not picketing, but like celebrating the film, going like, if you like this movie, you like what we stand for. And then he went on to tell how every field has said like, oh, you wrote this movie about us. This is a movie about being a Buddhist. This is a movie about psychotherapy. This is a movie about Christianity. This is a movie about Judaism. This is like, he said that every person he's ever kind of interacted with has come to him to say, you wrote the perfect movie that illustrates the tenets of of what we believe in. And I thought that was such an interesting idea. And I think maybe why this movie is so universally loved is because everyone can see themselves in it.
1: You know, Paul, that to me is proof of what I think we've really been learning as we go through these films is that specificity leads to universality. You know, the opposite mm, of what you Yes. Do. The more yes. generic you make something to please everybody, you kind of please nobody and it feels industrial. But you make something about a magical day that happens to be Groundhog Day and a cranky weatherman. And you're like, yes, yes, this is me. This is my life story. I think there is a real message in that about how to how to approach a screenplay.
2: I really just think you distilled something. People write that down if you are an aspiring writer or performer or really in anything that you do, because I think that that connection, you know, even if it's somebody like, I'm thinking back and this is an old reference, but like Angela's ashes, right? Like we are into biographies. We're into these stories because we see ourselves in, in the struggle. And that is what we're relating to. We, We don't need to have the same struggle. That's boring. But we see moments of realized human emotion and triumph, and uh, yeah, I'm really now thinking about that a lot. And I wish, I wish a lot of studio execs would take that note as well. You know, not being afraid of creating something that feels scary or feels uh, inaccessible, because I I do think that even if it doesn't translate into being a box office hit like a Groundhog Day. Or even like about my big fat Greek wedding or, you know, something like that. It will live for a longer period of time because it is something completely unique.
1: I agree. When I go through the films that I think we've talked about on this show, I wouldn't say that many of them had that mass produced sheen. You know, the the films that we love and remember, they have a fingerprint. You know, they leave a fingerprint on the culture.
2: Well, I would even say when you look at something like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, which are you know, probably put up in the, in the echelon of being like the biggest blockbusters that we have done. There's a passion in what George Lucas created about star Wars. I don't think he was setting out to create this giant expansive universe that it became. I think there was a passion there. And I, and even with the prequels, there is a passion there of like, I'm going to do something interesting with filmmaking and and maybe it's not all working, you know, uh, but there is, um, it's not a cog in the machine. And I think the same way with Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings, I think he was the only one able to tell those stories because he loved those stories so much. And we see how it didn't work with King Kong, but yet King Kong feels personal because it, again, is something that he was passionate about. So I think we always hear that idea of like a passion project, passion projects don't always work, but when they do, wow, watch out.
1: Now, we're about to talk about a film that is based on a title that I would say sounds like the most universal title of all time. We're about to talk um, about a movie that was based on a book called An American Tragedy. How is that for an epic
2: title? I did not. I mean, I did not know that until I was doing my research. I was like, wow. And they made, well, we'll talk about it in the show, but they made that film with that title. And of course, people do not want to see that. You can describe something as that. But um, you know, before we even get into the episode, I want to ask this question because, you know, I was confusing this film with A Raisin in the Sun. But then isn't there a song to Amy called like, there's a place for us. Is that a place in the sun? Is it, Or is that a different, uh, am I thinking about something totally different? I think it's a Barbra Streisand song. Am I right? Or you know, oh, like,
1: no, 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 oh, no, 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 no. The genius Molly is um, elbowing us to be like, hello, you people. This is from west side story a movie we covered
2: oh yes there we go all right there we go got yeah. it thank you i was Molly. afraid you were
1: gonna go with let me go on like a blister in the sun
2: <laughs> no i did not think that <laughs> way uh, and and yeah and i also was confused that that song about breakfast at tiffany's was about breakfast at tiffany's uh <laughs> what about breakfast at tiffany's and that was actually on the original soundtrack um which people don't know uh amy i think we have a dead man walking So we should unspool it. The year is 1951. The 22nd Amendment is ratified, limiting a U.S. presidential term to only eight years. Thank goodness. Uh, Federal unemployment rates dip to 3.3% and the U.S. heads into a period of expansion. The oral contraceptive pill is invented. Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed coins the term rock and roll. And the popular films are a Streetcar Named Desire, African Queen, An American in Paris, and today's film, A Place in the Sun. Let's hear a little clip. Are
3: you crazy coming up here, phoning me like that, with my whole family listening in? You weren't
4: even staying with your family. You were staying with Angela Vickers. George, aren't you waiting for it? You're going to marry me tomorrow. Or I'll... I'll telephone the newspapers and tell them everything. And then I'll kill myself.
3: Don't talk like that.
4: You make me talk like that. Now we'll go to Warsaw in the morning and get married. Get out of here. I I won't get out of here until you say you will. That you're going to do it.
2: All right, Amy, who's in it? What's it about?
1: A Place in the Sun. Well, the team behind it are names we've heard of before. The director is George Stevens, who we've talked about with Swing Time and Shane, two movies that did not make our 40. They are off the list. So we have a George Stevens hole on our in our hearts right now that perhaps this can fill. And the writer is um, Harry Brown working with Michael Wilson. And we also know Michael Wilson from Bridge Over the River Kwai, from Lawrence of Arabia, and from a film that we haven't gotten to do yet, which is the original Planet of the Apes. Now, this film, this film stars the couple that at the time was called the most beautiful couple in the world. And if you have seen this, you will agree. It is young Elizabeth Taylor, who had been working in the business forever at this point. She was still only 17, and Montgomery Cliff. Montgomery Cliff. I'm excited for people who have never seen a, a Montgomery Cliff before um, film before That's to me. see this film. That's you. Oh, That's me. Never. I have a feeling you're going to be a Cliff head. What do you think? Are I, you a, a cliffhead? I dude?
2: am. You know, it's so interesting. And I don't want to cut you off too early because we will talk about it. I think that I merged Rock Hudson and Montgomery Cliff together in a weird way. I don't know why I have thought of them as the same person. Um, and it seems like I don't know much about Montgomery Cliff at all i've heard the name a lot but it was just even a different i mean it's like yeah i'm blown away by him i will talk about it all but yes i am now a fan
1: Ah, we will talk about it all but first we have to set up the plot which is that this is a very twisted and sad and tragic love story montgomery cliff plays the nephew of a rich family he wasn't raised anywhere near them but he shows up looking for a job they give him the lowest possible job and while he's lonely He falls in love with the girl who's working right next to him at this factory, packing swimsuits into little boxes. And she is played by the one and only Shelley Winters. They fall in love or something. They nurse each other's loneliness. But the whole while, he has a crush for this Elizabeth Taylor beauty. Her name is Angela Vickers. She's the most perfect girl on the earth. And once he has a shot with the beautiful Angela, he finds out that Shelley Winters is pregnant. And what will he do? This is 1951. And he is probably just going to have to marry her or kill her. This will not end well. Now, A Place in the Sun comes out August 14th, 1951. And if you were cruising to the theater in your little convertible, there was a song on the radio that once again perfectly captured the zeitgeist of a young guy in love. And it is not going to work out well. It is by Ricky Nelson, father of the one and only Nelson Twins, a band married near and dear to my heart, with his song, Poor Little Fool.
4: To play around with parts,
3: hasten at my car. But when I met that little
4: girl, I knew that I would fall for little food. Oh, yeah. I was a fool. Uh I was a fool. Oh, yeah.
2: wow I've never heard of that song.
1: You've never heard of that song. Did you not just grow up listening to the oldie station with your dad in the car?
2: No, my dad didn't listen to music. Both of my parents have a weird relationship to music. Like, my dad had a Bob Dylan tape, Blood on the Tracks, and that's about it. That's all I really saw about music <laughs> from my dad. And my mom had a Simply Red album, like, and that's about it. So like, it wasn't like there was music in our house. I think we also had a Michael Jackson album as well, but I feel like you were, for if you grew up in that time period, you had to buy a Michael Jackson album. I feel like everyone owned thriller uh, yeah you
1: were frog marched to sam goody to buy thriller
2: exactly so wait ricky nelson also the actor is he also a singer is it am i confusing nelson's now
1: oh wait i think he did do some acting i mean maybe he was in that like a uh, partridge family earlier model i guess because yeah, like, I, I think he did like a leave who it to beaver
2: show yeah I, I think so look look at this we're really we're going deep uh, on the nelsons deep on the uh,
1: nelson's <laughs> we're not going half nelson we're going full nelson
2: yeah look at this uh, uh, he was in uh Rio bravo Oh, real Bravo! It oh, yeah. was in sentence was... of Ozzy and Harriet. Yeah, Ozzy and Harriet. Ozzy and Harriet. That's what I thought of. Look at this. Look at this. The team is coming together to get our <laughs> Nelson facts straight. Does it play any part of this movie? Absolutely no, not. not at all. <laughs> but we are not afraid to go off on tangents. Amy, I want to tell you something, and I don't often do this when we talk about the show. I've never seen this movie before. Like I said earlier, I've never seen a Montgomery Cliff film, but I I don't often say this at the top of an episode and when i do you know it's uh it means something amy this movie slaps Ah! um i didn't know what to expect i really truly didn't know what to expect uh you know again this is over my head in a way. Like, I'm not like the biggest Liz Taylor fan. I don't know Montgomery Clift. I know Shelley Winters, but I know Shelley Winters as like the joke from SCTV of being like a very large uh, person, kind of like an Orson Welles persona. Like, so all all my cultural references don't even mean anything. I'm going in here really blind. I don't know anything about this movie. And I am absolutely blown away with what they were able to do in 1951 with this movie. I mean, this movie truly is not only shot in a beautiful way, but deals with some really heavy topics in ways that are subtle and smart. And I mean, at every turn, I'm like marveling at cinematography. I'm in love with the acting and, and, and really truly blown away. And and not only that, I see the blueprint of so many things. I couldn't help but think of Fast Times when I'm watching this. And I couldn't help think of so many, even Blue Valentine. Like there's so many films where this is the DNA of a lot of complicated romantic films, I feel like. And really, really, truly um, surprising and fun. And And when we find movies like this that I haven't seen, I get so jazzed about them so I just wanted to kind of get it out of the way that this movie I was like whoa I really kind of it just brought me in really really Uh, brought me in
1: do you have any idea how warm that makes my heart feel right now I mean (laughs) which is twisted given that this is such a dark film I think Mm -hmm. in what it says about frustrations and relationships and and trying to find happiness in this cold 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 world And actually, we would have seen this movie earlier, but it was kicked off the AFI list. It actually was on the 1997 list and was kicked off um, by the time we would have gotten to it. And this movie, I just think, is astonishing. You know, I I kept thinking about our Rebel Without a Cause episode watching this, you know, and like we Mm talked so much in that episode about like who James Dean was when he shows up, the template that he sets. We did the same thing with Marlon Brando. And Montgomery Cliff is the third guy and really the first of that trio to make it into Hollywood. You know, he's the one that I feel like is kind of left out of those, like, let's talk about these actors gang people. Let's talk about them. He's the one who really, I think, paved the road for them to come forward. Like, he was a guy who was kind of considered the most talented of the three of them back when they were, like, in acting school. Like, he was... The suave one, the more like intelligent, cerebral one. He wasn't. He wasn't the guy who's gonna like walk into the party and burp on people. But they would love him anyways. The way like Marlon Brando was. Like he mm-hmm. was considered like I guess, I guess you'd say like the thinking man's brilliant actor hunk.
2: Well, what I was thinking about when I was watching him was this reminds me, or I should say, I believe that Paul Newman took a lot from Montgomery Cliff. Like there's something very Paul Newman-y about him, but something that also is James Dean-esque, like James Dean-esque. And forgive me for like, I feel like I'm marginalizing something. There is something about James Dean that seems working class, right? That feels like, okay, he, we don't trust him. He doesn't seem like a Hollywood glamour boy. And I feel like what is interesting about Paul Newman, I think he has that as well. Like, you know, I think you can see him in Cool Hand Luke and The Verdict and things of that nature where you feel like, oh, I don't know where, where to trust him. And Montgomery Clift has the looks of a, of a Cary Grant, uh, you know, the looks of a Marlon Brando, but there's something about him that feels like, uh, a little bit more dangerous. Like the idea of like, and again, I'm, I'm I'm making a stereotypical thing, but it's like, there's like a, a, a trailer park kind of like, oh, he might shiv you. Like if you, you know, like if you, if you don't look the right way, there's an energy of him. And I think that that's what this movie kind of plays into in a way, like what is going on? His mom's at this place. How did he get ahead? What did he do? It lets the character. I think only a certain actor can kind of carry the weight that this character does. And in multiple scenes. And and you see him, I think, just dynamically and effortlessly just transform in every scene. But it all feels of the same person. It's a beautiful three-dimensional performance in many, many ways.
1: No, you're right. I mean, maybe I'm just making this illusion because I was like hiking today in Griffith Park, you know, and and which is not too far from the observatory, which is such a big deal. That's in um Rebel Without a Cause. But if I had to compare the two, like James Dean in that movie is, I don't know, a really talented border collie. I don't know, like he's a really lovely, sweet dog. Okay, that that's not exactly right. But I think where I'm trying to go is like I think James Dean is a type of dog. You know, like right. a really you you do love him and you feel like you can trust James Dean. Whereas I think that Montgomery Cliff is more like a coyote. You know, there is something sad about him, which Dean has, and something I think really like handsome about him, which Dean also has. But there is a a bit of a predatory nature to him. You know, he is, I think, lonelier in his loneliness than I think Dean is capable of. He feels more unreachable. I don't know. There's something I think in the core of Montgomery Cliff that feels like lost and ambitious and hungry and wild. And, you know, I mean, maybe this is I could just even talk a little bit about like how he was raised. Like he is a kid who was raised, I think, without having his two feet squarely on the ground. You know, like his family was really was working class on his dad's side. His dad never had a ton of money, but his mother was Um, she was a- adopted as she when she was a kid. And she convinced herself that she was descended from this very rich, like Civil War debutante legacy that her father had fought in the Civil War, she was sure of it, and that she was aristocracy. Even if she didn't know her father, even if she was never going to meet him, even if she had no idea who he was, that was how she was going to raise her kids. So that if they were ever welcomed back into aristocracy, they would belong. So then this is how Montgomery Cliff goes up. Like He doesn't have much money at all in his house, but yet he's privately tutored. He travels a bunch. He learns like german he learns french he's incredibly protected and sheltered and he never quite feels like he belongs anywhere like he's not really treated like a working class kid even though that's the neighborhood he's growing up with but he's definitely not around any aristocrats and he's not really he doesn't belong there either like one time his mother took him on um a boat she like sailed the whole family to europe you know which is like a wild thing to do oh and she didn't have any money for any of this and as he's sailing across Europe, he gets into a fight with another kid on the ship who was, like, you know, richer and more of, like, the type to be on the ship. And the kid pushes his head underwater, and Montgomery Cliff, like, blacks out and nearly dies. And when he is, like, raised and kind of come to by the ship's doctor, he gets this giant abscess on his neck. And it's, like, swollen and infected. until to save him, the doctor does this kind of crude boat surgery. And so you actually see it for a millisecond in this film, and he's kissing Elizabeth Taylor. He's a guy with this crazy scar on his neck. It looks like I he tried to kill that. himself.
2: Well, yeah. I thought that that was maybe something that happened in the boating accident. Yeah, like that's what I assumed. Like like Luke Skywalker in the in the Wampa scene in uh, or Empire Strikes Back, how they kind of morphed his injury uh into the film oh wow okay interesting
1: yeah that's exactly it and they usually hit it in films because i mean it's weird you have this like pretty boy intelligent very talented actor with this gnarly ass scar that looks like he got into a knife fight but it's really from a cruise ship accident you know and he's like this kid is kind of surrounded by all of these contradictions and i think there's a lot of that in this character like here is a guy who is related to the rich but he doesn't belong in the rich and even though people keep thinking he belongs with the rich and he's determined to belong with the rich and he tries to buy the suits but his suits are never nice enough he tries to have manners and everybody looks right through him and there's that need to belong that i think he could really identify with in this film
2: yeah well i think this is a very traditional story and i know you haven't seen secession but when i was watching this i was like oh this is cousin greg from secession, right to a certain degree, and I and I know this is like a, a reference that's going over you, but I'm, I won't I won't uh, belabor it. Um, but there's this idea of this person who is related to this very successful family, but very much on the outskirts. When we meet Cousin Greg, this is in the pilot. He's working at an amusement park owned by essentially like Rupert Murdoch, and he comes into the family and and is ingratiates himself into this world. Um, and there was something about that first scene or one of the early scenes where he does buy that tweed suit and he comes in to the rich family the rich family the eastmans and they're all in tuxedos you know and they all look amazing like like we are gonna see a, a movie like swing time or something like that and and the suit looks baggy and it doesn't look as nice and it's it really there's so much um show not tell in this movie. Uh, that I love. It doesn't belabor too much, and it really treats the audience with a tremendous amount of respect.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen to the way they talk about him behind his
0: back. George Eastman's dropping in tonight. George Eastman?
4: You mean Asa's son?
0: That's right. I ran into him in Chicago.
4: Is he going to lead us in a prayer?
0: Oh, he's not at all like Asa or his wife. He's very quiet, and pleasant, not much education, but ambitious. He looks amazingly like her. What's he do? He's bellhop in my hotel. Oh, fine. I always wanted to look like a bellhop.
4: But Charles, why do you have to bring him on here?
0: There's always a place to plant for a boy like that.
4: But what are we going to do about him socially?
0: That's easy. We can all leave town. Well, you people don't have to take him up socially. He just wants to work and get ahead. That's
1: all. You know, we get a reference in that kind of snark about him. Like, is he going to recite a sermon? You know, where you... Understand a little bit about this kid and where he came from. You know, we don't really get the full backstory of him. Like, up until now, we've just seen him as like a kid who's hitchhiking. But all of a sudden, you get this idea that he grew up in, I don't know if you'd want to call it like a religious cult, but he grew up bizarre. You know, he grew up uneducated, he grew up isolated. Like, he walks by, you know, he's on a date with um, Shelly Winters, he walks by that choir singing on the street, and he sees a little kid forced to stand outside in the cold and sing to strangers and he sees himself and he he's listening to them right here in the scene and he's seeing his himself as a younger kid this with you let's say
4: i was making up to the boss's nephew that's silly i'm in the same boat as the rest of you if you're an eastman you're not in the same boat with anyone well i work along with you don't i oh sure and pretty soon they'll move you up to a better job, and first thing you know, you'll find yourself in the front office. That's the last we'll ever see of Mr. George Eastman. Who says that? Well, everybody. Everybody knows they put you in with us to learn the business. I wouldn't be sure of that. <laughs>
2: I love that moment because, again, there's little clues. I think at the end of the film, and we'll just talk about the whole film, you know, we don't have to go in order. um, When he's up for trial, they make some sort of a reference, like, we can't bring in your mother to this because they know that his mother will not help his case. And we only see his mother once or twice in the whole film. And you see where she's at and you see how he describes it, the way that she looks it feels like there is something Well, you don't know. We don't, we'll never fully know, but I love that. Those are the little clues. And, and I think it's alluded to like, there's something, there's an issue with his dad. We don't know the issue with his dad. And, and that that's what I was saying before. We only know what this character tells us. Mm. So, when I said, like, oh, there's an unpredictability to him, I'm like, could he stab you? We don't know what his past is. We really, truly don't know. How did he get here? Yes, we see him hitchhiking. Yes, we see him present himself. But we also know he's a liar. The weight of the world falls on him in this film. But we also see him on the stand lying. So there is a really interesting, there. there's an interesting prequel here. Uh, you know, if we wanted to go that route, like, how did he get out of that cult or Religious, yeah. you know, there, there's something there that we don't know, and I don't believe that we ever fully meet this character.
1: There's a shadow over him, right? And and to yes. me, a sense that he's never been dealt a fair hand, no matter what. You know, like hmm. he wasn't dealt a fair hand in how he was born, and now he's around the rich family that probably assumes he's like either a religious creep or he's gold digging. I don't, I don't know if anybody else ever experienced this. Did you ever have to sit college? Maybe it's just because I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, but like Mm -hmm. twice a year, um, the Phelps family would come by. You know, the Phelps people might recognize as like Westboro Baptist. They came through Oklahoma every year. They always stood in like the center of campus. They like had people yell at them. You know, that was like their favorite thing was just to like have people yell at them and misquote the Bible at you and. Uh, They would call people demons, you know, it was a whole thing. And like, it was kind of exciting. Like you'd gather around and like watch them and be like, here they go. They're acting crazy. Uh, But there was always a bunch of little kids there too. And so you felt, I remember just feeling like this sense of this poor, like 11 year old girl, you know, like she might want to go to college and maybe she's not going to get to go to college. And just to spend her life go, like going around places and being yelled at by people. And like, being treated as like a horrible dummy and like maybe she'll who knows if she'll ever get out like and you just feel terrible and so I think I was putting a lot of the Phelps onto this and then yeah when you see the mom she just kind of looks like a social worker so I feel like you don't, and maybe in the movie I don't think you get the total picture except for in his reaction to that kid
2: yeah I, I, I feel like there's something more going on there she looks I mean I think her look is intentional I want to say that uh, although I didn't have experience with the Phelps family, you know, my uh, my parents uh, or my mom and, and her husband became, you know, born again Christians. So I do understand mm-hmm. like, you know, where, you know, we were going and getting baptisms. My mom was getting baptized, you know, in, in her 30s and and we would, you know, go to, you know, mass on Friday night and Sunday for hours. And, you know, my, my action figures were replaced with like Bible figures and, and, you know, it became uh, a very intense, you know, period of time in, in, in our, in our family. Like I I understand, I understand that kind of lifestyle to a certain extent, you know, we weren't going door to door, but you know, it was, I remember Christmas being wrecked for me because my, my aunt, was like, we don't celebrate Santa Claus, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, and as a little kid, you're like, what, huh? There is no Santa, you know? <laughs> so um, whatever, you know, so anyway. I, Wait, I, so you, I, you
1: had Jesus action figures and you played with oh, them? Oh yeah, like, I had like Moses,
2: like with, Moses with the four? two tablets. I mean i would put them in like a batmobile and stuff like that i mean i like you know uh you know it was like i I still had the the want to play with them like gi joe's uh, or he-man figures and i would mix and match but um you know i've told the story numerous times i mean you know there was a letter that was given out at our church um of the albums that you couldn't have and my mom took our weird out my weird al yankovic in 3d album and threw it in the trash because there was a song on there called Nature Trail to Hell in 3D, which was just about him going to see a bad horror movie called Nature Trail to Hell. I mean, it's one of the weird Al originals, but the church was like, no, no, that's a song about devil worship. Like, so that's the <laughs> level of like weird shit that we were into. Um but, well, but I know I, we're on a
1: detour, but I have to say my dad only tried to pull that on me once because I was definitely a kid that grew up reading VC Andrews and like oh, Stephen yeah. King. But for some reason, my dad decided that he was going to take a stand on the Guns N' Roses double-sided cassette tape of Use Your Illusion 1 and oh, 2. Boy. For yeah. some reason, that was the line. He decided he just wanted to try to care about what I was getting into my brain just that once. And he let me buy the album. But then he uh, took a sharpie and cussed out, crossed out all the bad words in the liner notes, and that's the only time in my life I ever remember him caring about like whether oh, or not wow. I was absorbing bad messages. It was I hilarious. Very neat little black lines crossed it <laughs> a lot.
2: Uh, June's dad, um, very like Roman Catholic, straight, very normal Catholic upbringing, like nothing out of the norm, right? Like just like we went to church and that's it. We like our church and we do our thing. Um, he once gave june and her sisters a book on anatomy and put underwear on all of the anatomy pictures so they wouldn't see penises and stuff like that which i thought was amazing uh and i think they were just drawing so it wasn't even like you know it wasn't real pictures of naked men but so I what think we're what-
1: saying is growing up in this kind of a household.
0: <laughs> reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh... Reese, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Discover why critics are calling. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
2: This movie is making some sort of statement about fanaticism, right? And I think that that can kind of carry over, over the entire film in the sense that it seems to me that they're making the case that his mother is some sort of fanatic. She is not right. She's not normal for whatever reason that is. We don't know. The same way that Montgomery Cliff comes in, he presents himself as being normal. I'm going to work here very much like, you know, Tom Cruise in the firm. I'm going to work my way up the ladder. And he, and, and if it's a different movie, we we're on his side the entire time. You know, it's Jack Lemmon in the apartment. It's, you know, it's, it's a very typical story
1: i was thinking of tom cruise a lot in this movie actually very
2: yeah. much so i very mean he, so. he 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 looks like tom cruise mm-hmm. in montgomery cliff i thought of him a lot and, and yeah and, and, and actually
1: tom cruise modeled his career after paul newman In oh, Paul newman wow really lucked out because what happens you know not long after this movie comes out is you know of course james dean dies in a car crash Montgomery Cliff gets in a really bad car crash, like so bad that like his teeth are knocked out and they're like stabbed into the back of his throat. And Elizabeth Taylor is the one who comes and finds his body and she's like cradling his head and pulling the teeth out of the back of his throat. And so he's scarred and he's, you know, they fix him up with plastic surgery, but he's never really the same. So it's like these two car wrecks that both happen in like 56-ish kind of take out these top two actors. And Paul Newman slides in there. Like, I don't know if Paul Newman gets that career if he's not competing right against he doesn't Dean have the competition, right? Yeah.
2: That's really yeah. interesting. Um, so just to continue this point of fanaticism, and I think that we we see this fanaticism in the way he behaves, right? I'm gonna be very much like and in this part of the conversation that he's a bad guy. And I'm gonna go back later and say he's not a bad guy. But like he gets obsessed with Shelly Winters. And it and that relationship is rushed. And and so much so that it's like, I love you. I'm here. I'm like, let's go, let's do this thing. And then that relationship doesn't even get complicated, but then there's something else in his reach. It's like, okay, now I'm here. There's a great book called like by Bud Schulberg called What Makes Sammy Run, which is about somebody trying to get up the corporate ladder in like 1950s Hollywood. I don't think that he's even intentionally trying to move up. I just think he's like, now I'm obsessed with you, now I'm obsessed with you. Like he's not a person to be trusted. In, and I and I think that is. He's all in, and I don't know if that's because he needs something to be filled or he's looking up. But I don't, I don't, I guess what I, what I see about this is more of a problem with him. I don't see him using Shelly Winters as a stepping stone. I think he's incapable. Like there would be, if this, if he didn't murder Shelly Winters, there would be someone that would replace uh, Elizabeth Taylor.
1: Oh, I don't know if anybody could replace
2: Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, they seem like they have love, but we don't get a chance to really engage in it i guess what i'm saying is i feel like there will always be another level from to go up and i don't even think it's conscious for him i think he wants to i don't think it's about like creating the perfect life necessarily i think there's something off in him that can make him kind of turn it's like i don't know you so you don't you, or do you think it's a real love and then he got caught in this old relationship i don't know i mean this is a this is an interesting conversation to kind of have
1: i think he is the worst kind of heartbreaker, which is
2: okay.
1: he genuinely thinks he's genuine. Okay. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Okay. Like
1: he's not trying to pull one over on Shelley Winters necessarily. Like when he seduces her, you know, like he's mm-hmm. been stuck folding swimsuits for months. You know, we have that kind of glimpse of mm-hmm. all the calendars flashing by. He's starved for human companionship. Oh, that's what
2: that meant. I thought there was just a windstorm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he is desperate for anybody to pay attention right. to him. Like his family hasn't spoken to him in months. He's so alone. You almost get the sense nobody has ever been more alone. He is forbidden from dating um, at all inside of the company just because men aren't allowed to date women, which is probably a decent policy except when it might lead to murder. But um, Shelly Winters is the prettiest girl that he sees on the floor and he happens to sit next her at the theater and he is just desperate, desperate for anybody to be nice to him. And for him to be nice to her, I think he genuinely likes her. But I also think there's a level of him that doesn't respect her. You know, she is not the most beautiful girl on the planet. Uh, She is not the most intelligent girl on the planet. They don't seem to have very many good conversations. And I want to say, I think all of these things are great, actually, actual character details. You know, like, it's not like he falls in love with, like, the simple girl who's really sweet and beautiful and, like, Mm -hmm. nice to him. You know she's not that interesting you don't really see them connect and you can tell he doesn't respect her because of how much from the beginning he's just trying to get her to have sex with him just like no real like kiss your hand purity like what is it maybe their second date and you get you know what i would be the kind of hayes cody implication that they are definitely fucking like right here oh you can hear
2: it. yeah And I mean, when he walks out in the morning, I, all that, that sequence is, again, jaw dropping because it's like, whoa, they're doing it. But I guess it, what you and I are kind of talking about, I think, revolve around the same thing. It's like, I think what you're saying is he, it's a one night stand. It's casual. It's like, it's because he needs something. It's like, it's like, it will do. It will do because of where he's at.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I think if Angela Vickers never looked at him again, mm-hmm. he, he might even make it work with Shelley. Maybe for a while, you know, like, right. she's fine. You know, she's the most fine thing he's had. I I, I don't think he's intending to only like nail Shelly once. I think he's like, I think he, I think he would keep her around. And if she asked right. him if he liked her, she'd say, he'd absolutely say that he does like her. And I think he'd mean it.
2: see, I'm, 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 I'm wrestling with this because the way that you look at Shelly Winters, I think is much more painted in the second half of Shelley Winters, the I'm pregnant Shelley Winters, the where have you been Shelley Winters, which I think that character gets immediately downgraded in a way. I feel like they, there's a part of you. I mean, I I don't feel this way, but I think you can make a thing where it's like, oh, she's so like, just come on, get out, like, get out of his way. Because once you see Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Cliff dance and kiss, you're like, that's the story I want to see. I'm here. I want to see them frolicking on the beach. I want to see them, you know, I want to see, I want to be in that world. I think as an audience member, we want to be in the world of the Eastmans. We don't want to be in the world of the, the one bedroom, uh, yeah. you know, but.
1: I mean, who does? Like genuinely, maybe right. that is the tragedy of America. Who does? Like, would right. you want to be with the people who are in tuxedos and fur coats? Absolutely. And, well, let's, okay, let's, let's talk about this from Shelley's point of view. You're working this factory job, and like you're from a small town, and there's no cute guys for her either. Like, she's so lonely. And then here comes this guy, and he's been oh, and flirting with white her, t-shirt, and staring and he at her, sexy, and he's so as hell. handsome. And he's acting like he genuinely really cares about her. And she's, you know, what you hear in that scene where she, like, Kind of gives in and has sex with him. You know, she's been trying not to. She's really trying not to. She's trying to say goodbye to him at the door. She's trying to give him a handshake. Mm-hmm. He makes that excuse to go inside and play with the radio. And then she's finally just gives in, but she's not. She's, I hate to say like coded things, like she's a good girl, but she really is a, trying to be a good girl by the standards of that day. You know, she's doing something really out of character because this magically handsome Guy, yes, connected to the boss, like, but really, he's just magically handsome. Shows up in her life.
2: She she calls their relationship. She calls it in the first time that they meet. You know, and after they're walking home from the movie theater. But I guess what I'm saying is, I see that push, that let's have sex, that I won't take no for an answer. Which, look, we we got to talk about promising young woman at one point because I think that this also deals with that, as being someone who won't take no for an answer. Like he wants what he wants and he's going to get what he gets. And I think in the moment, he wants this relationship. It fulfills a need for him and he will do everything he can to get that. I don't think it's like a conquest. I don't think it's like a one night stand. I don't, I think it's sort of like when I set my sights on something, I want something. That's the reason why he hitchhikes. I'm going to say across the country to get to this job. I want to get this job. I'm going to work here. I'm going to work up. I'm willing to wait. Months and months and months to move up. I'm going to write these letters to Mr. Eastman about how to be more productive. Like he is goal oriented. So, what I'm saying is yes, I absolutely believe that everything with Liz Taylor is an upgrade, but I believe that there would be another upgrade. The way that this person has worked makes me feel like there is no true love because he's trying to fill a hole that he does not necessarily know how deep it is or he thinks, like, he's not enough of himself to know about true love, I believe, even though I love that love story. If that can make sense, if, can that coexist? Like, I love the love story of the two of them, and I think that Liz Taylor will go off and, and be very healthy, but I I think he is an unhealthy guy, and I, I, I know what you're saying about a heartbreaker, but I think that he is, he is going to always try to fill this hole, whether it's a job, woman, whatever, I could see him having an affair like, I could see this as a sequel, you know, without the death. And then he's in love with another woman. Like, she really gets him because she actually has the same background as him. And she's achieved. That's who I need to be with. That's the power person, you know. Uh, and she's from a better family. You get more money. Like, I don't know. There's something about it. Like, I don't, I don't trust him. I don't trust him.
1: I mean, that's fair. But I, I, I do think it is telling that you never see him try to pressure Elizabeth Taylor into sex. You know, like, he will treat her differently from the beginning. Like, he's, he knows the rules. Yeah, he's he after can't. something different with her.
2: He's manipulative.
1: Do you think he's manipulative? Yes. I want to think. Oh, yes. oh gosh. He knows am I a
2: sucker? I Amy, must be I, a
1: sucker. I, I want to think that their love is genuine. And he's just never had anybody like her take an interest in him.
2: I think two things can be true. You know, again, we're talking about this world of I'm in love with you on the first time I see you. You know, I'm making a phone call. You come into the room with the, you know the pool the billiard room or whatever you know he sees her the first time when she comes in with her friends in that that scene i just i don't doubt the connection but i also think that this is a person who knows how to act right he knows how, he's going to kill he when he hears about the person drowning in that lake the film is very deliberately showing you oh, maybe i should kill shelly winters and i'm 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 making it absurd but it does, you know, it's not that it's done very well. But if that's your first thought, like, oh, maybe I should kill her. That is a giant step to make, right? Um, If he really loved her, he could could talk about, I'm in this situation. He could talk to her, but he knows how to play the world. He knows how to play these people. He plays George, you know, he plays Mr. Eastman very well. I think he's trying. I think he, oh, yes, sir. I'm going to get the suit. I'm going to appear to you in my suit because I know that that's what I need to do. And I'm going to I'm yes, and, I, and I'm i fine working here. Like, he's not going to complain. He's, I don't know. I think he knows how to play roles. That's my point. I think he is manipulative.
1: Wow. I must be the most naive person on earth. I must be a, a Shelley Winters type because I just don't, I don't really see it. I don't think he has seen enough of human behavior to be so phony. Well, I, I want to know. I, I want to, I think, yeah. he, I think he's like, Seeing how he thinks the world works, you know, you show up, you do a good job, you try to look nice, you try to fit in. I think he has this template that he has been told is the key to success, and he just keeps trying, and I think he keeps failing. Like, I see him, like, thinking he has a nice suit and failing, and thinking he's, like, coming up with, like, the plan where he's going to show him how to run the line better and it'll work. But that actually fails, too. You know, like, there's that whole scene where, like, his uncle comes by and gives him a promotion, but it's because his uncle basically forgot that he exists.
0: Oh, George? I suppose you thought I'd forgotten all about you. No, sir. You may not know it, but I've been keeping an eye on you. That's very good of you, sir. Getting along all right? I I know the work pretty well now, sir. Yes, I suppose you do. Do you think you know it well enough to take on some responsibility? Yes, sir. Good. I'm going to move you up. And, you know, what I
1: love about the staging of that scene is like, yeah, OK, the uncle did not even see like his like great notes about how to fix it, you know, like, OK, so that that didn't work either. But in the way they stage that scene, like he's turned away, he's talking, he's getting his promotion. And meanwhile, Shelley Winters is in the back doing all of his work plus hers. You know, she's the one like stacking love all it. of the boxes that he's not paying attention to. And you just know from that immediate setup that you're right. She called it. She is going to wind up carrying the weight of this relationship because he's a white guy with the name Eastwood and it's going to be okay for him
2: What is the most unselfish thing you could do when you are in a very casual relationship
1: I would say have the other person be monogamous to you if you're not going to do it back
2: I would say actively not wearing a condom and 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 having like you know like he's yeah. like that is like right on some level there is something that that him getting her pregnant on one night there. It's like, that's an irresponsibility or a cavalierness that I feel like also defines him, right? On some level, like he's so, and look, like, I just think it's a very, it's a very interesting point of view. I think it's been dealt with amazingly well and shows like I may destroy you and things like that. Like, it's a selfish, it's a selfish thing for whatever reason, we don't know why, I don't think he's trying to make her pregnant, but it's uh, on some level he understands. Like this is a man, this is not the first time he's having sex. It may yeah, be the right. first time. And went through this for that.
1: Like there is right about condoms back then. Like World War II definitely popularized it. They're like, do not get VD when you are in Germany. Please use a condom.
2: He's done. He's doing something anyway. I, I again, and this book was written in 1931, so maybe it's a little bit more. But uh, there's something here. He must there's have some- had
1: condoms in 1931, right? I, I mean, like, think, didn't the French just really used to use, like, sheep bladder? Just, like, tie it on and be like, here we go.
2: I mean, I still do. <laughs> uh, and that but, is why you have two kids. And that's why I have four sheep. Um, <laughs> the uh, I think you're right. She calls it. I dated somebody once who I think very astutely called our relationship Early on, I was out, I was getting out of a longer term relationship and I kind of got involved with this person who was lovely and smart and great, but she kind of called it. She was like, well, this is this, and you know, this is this. And, and I would like, no, 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 it's not, it's not. And it was, and I don't even know if I was like, I think on some level, (sighs) I don't know. On some level, I knew it. And some levels, when you get confronted with it, you're like, it's not that. I I think that Shelley Winters is perceptive. I think that she is smart. I think that she is, they make her, I think, in the second half of this film, a lot more whiny. So you could still see his point of view. Um, You know, maybe, I I don't know. Because this is also the part, this is also the issue that uh, Montgomery Cliff has with Shelley's performance he's like i think that she's directed terribly in this movie um and i thought that was interesting like is it is this movie more complex if she is like what you said she is somebody who's interesting and smart and good and capable
1: you know i don't think so to be honest okay. and that's okay. i mean first i just want to say like maybe maybe to be a cliff or to cliff somebody which is what your story just made me think of uh-huh. Is to want to see yourself as a better version of a person than you are, right? right. Like I am genuinely a, a sweetheart and a lover, and I will I will do this. And I think maybe that's where we can dovetail how we okay. feel about his character. He wants to believe. I think he wants to be a better person. He wants to believe he can succeed. And I think he's doing it genuinely. You think he's doing it manipulatively, but either way, he's like looking in the mirror and trying.
2: Right. Absolutely. And, and yeah. by the way, I'm going to say this. I, I, I think you just said something that I, I, I want to just underline. I don't think it's intentional manipulation. I think that he doesn't, he's trying to fill a, a void. So I, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's like the Bud Schulberg, what makes Sammy run. I am trying to fuck people over. I think it's more like, oh, I want this now. I just think it's an interesting, yeah. like, put him in psychoanalysis and I think we could figure it out. So I think we can, we agree. But I also have like a theory yeah. on on that. Okay, so that's just, yeah, just to it's clarify. True.
1: And before we villainize him, I mean, I don't want to villainize. I, him. No, I, I feel like I've been there. Like you're sort of dating somebody, and then you're like, oh wait, I could date that person. Ooh, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, come on, right? That
2: that absolutely that's happened.
1: That's happened. That's happened. I can. Think I mean, of look, a it's the, it's the
2: premise of it's the premise of so much of our literature and our film and our songs, and you know, it's like the bigger, better deal. The The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. It's, it, you know, it's, that's why I think this movie resonates so much. It's like, this is, this is an issue that's always going to pop up for some people. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, okay, this is good for right now, but it's not really, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, and he, it's very easy to sympathize with this character and you, there's a part of me, did you want him to get off at the end?
1: Well, yeah. Okay. So then let's jump back and talk about like yeah. the Shelley Winters and the casting thing. Yeah. Because okay, I, I like doing straw man movie arguments. Here's the straw man version uh, that I can imagine existing of a movie like A Place in the Sun. Mm-hmm. Montgomery Cliff rolls into town. He meets the girl who works next to him at the factory. He also meets the rich girl. And here's how those two characters, I believe, would genuinely play out, generally play out in a film. The rich girl is a snob. The rich girl is kind of mean and toying with him, Mm -hmm. playing with his emotions a bit, maybe Mm -hmm. not in it that seriously and kind of looking around like it's a John Hughes movie. Like, can she make a better Mm -hmm. deal? Yeah, she's like she's like dealing. She's kind of toying with his heart on a string. Meanwhile, the girl in the factory is like the sweetheart, the angel, the kind one, the one who's going to love him. And when you watch that movie, you know, from the beginning, he's going to wind up with the factory girl. So I think flopping it around that way and having the rich girl be I think genuine and sweet and kind and caring about him and letting us see some of the cracks in the Shelley Winters character which to be fair Shelley Winters is incredibly justified for being angry he has left her in the lurch he has fucked over her whole life you know if she if she is forced to carry this baby to term and be an unwed mother while well, he's like Hiding her existence and like being with Elizabeth Taylor? Absolutely. She has every right to call bullshit on that. However, by not making her by by, by showing that her character is kind of unpleasant to be around. You know, you, you can hear that you, you can hear even like the shift of her voice as she becomes a harsher person in this scene where mm-hmm. he like comes home, he's left her stranded on his mm-hmm. birthday, she's prepared the party for him, he's been dancing with Elizabeth Taylor all night. You hear this new side of her emerge, like right here.
4: Were there many young people there tonight? A few. Why? Oh, it's melted. Was your cousin Marcia there? Mm-hmm. All those other pretty girls you read about in the papers? Some of them were, yes. Yeah. They're not all pretty. Was Angela Vickers? What? Pretty. Did you like her very much? Like the son? Sure, she's a pretty girl. She wears nice clothes. Why shouldn't she with all that money? Honey, why do you have to keep needling me all the time? I can't help it.
1: And then from then on, the fact that we kinda don't want to be with her either, I think that well, makes the movie it. more complicated. I think it makes I, it so much more engaging.
2: Well, I think it makes it engaging, but I think it gives you an easy out. Because I think if you were to be like, she's actually good, but she's good. And you're also like, he, I think that I see Montgomery Cliff's issue that Shelley Winters becomes less sympathetic as the film goes on. So it makes it easier for you to root for a murderer because it's like, well, yeah, she is annoying. I mean, not, but like, you know, this is a, this is the MSNBC. Like I murdered my wife because I was in love with my babysitter, like kind of a story. It's like, you know, it, it like there is this. We've seen this story play out in real life, too. I I which, also just think... And this yeah. scene had
1: happened in real life. I mean, like, an oh. American tragedy was based oh, right. on yes. a real case. I mean, the, the real case here was um, there was a guy, Chester Gillette, and he was the mm-hmm. nephew of the owner of the Gillette factory, which made textiles at the time. And he winds up drowning a girl named Grace May Brown in a lake for basically the same reason. I mean... Some of the lines were even taken from the actual wow. trial. Like that's in the letters that um, the letters that uh, she wrote him were like read at the trial as well. And so Dreiser borrowed a bunch of that stuff. But then, OK, but see, you keep calling the easy choice like rooting for the murderer. But I think like realizing that you're rooting for the murderer is like the hard choice. You're like, oh, my God, am yes. I really rooting for? a murderer? Yes. Who am I? Am I a terrible person? And that's I agree. A great fucked up feeling.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think that this is why this film is masterfully directed. I'm not saying that I love this movie and I think it's actually really complex. <laughs> right. I do think it's complex. I think to I almost think it's a little bit of an easy way out to make her m- less sympathetic because then you can you can side a little bit more mm-hmm. with him. Now, maybe it's also we're seeing her from his point of view so that I would buy that like he sees her as that. Anyway, I also want to just throw into the, the mix of complex people, what's Liz Taylor's motivation? She's 17. She clearly is into him. Look, they connect, but are they connecting because he's simply different? Will she grow tired of him? You know, her, her parents seem to think that, um, you know, and it's it's a relationship kind of issue that we talked a little bit about uh, when we talked about guests who's coming to dinner, you know, like here are these well-to-do parents going, huh, huh, what, well, what is this? What am I seeing here? You know, you don't know, you're too young to know. And, um, you know, and I think Montgomery Cliff here is, is not playing the Sydney Portier role where Portier is like, yes, I get what you're saying. I also wonder, like, where she's at. Like, she's in high school love. Like, she's, I think that there's, I also think that the love that you feel like it as a high schooler is a different, you know, is a different thing too. I think there's something weird about her too. I don't know. I don't know if any of this love is real, but yet it captures all those feelings that when you feel like, I feel like she believes it's real. I feel like he believes it's real. I believe that he, like, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, unexamined feelings here. Like, you know, and I, I think like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that Liz Taylor is like, fully capable of having a relationship with this person or even understands what this relationship is because everyone is sort of like, huh, hmm. You know, You're I don't right.
1: know. Well, okay, let's play a couple of clips that I think really get into it. Because yeah, okay. I think it is a really interesting conversation. I'm going to actually do them in the reverse order that they show up in the film. Um okay. The first one I want to play is just the clip that we get to see of Elizabeth Taylor Without him when she's at school, when he's mm-hmm. Oh, I love that been arrested, and she's sitting in a classroom with a bunch of girls and listening to the kind of lecture that lets you get an insight into the basically the education that is offered her. You know, here she is, you know, a wealthy girl, really wealthy, should be, you know, getting the best of all things at school, and this is the kind of stuff they're talking to her about. How to be a good wife, how to behave yourself, mm-hmm. nothing intellectually stimulating.
0: When the student will emerge from the sheltered life grown up problems for the first time it is only then that he or she will view the enthusiasms of youth in the perspective of genuine problems as opposed to the imagined problems which are the frequent products of the sheltered immaturity it is at this time that the sometimes hastily adopted beliefs of youth are found to be insufficient
1: and, you know in the scene that's played for like a little bit of an ironic you know chuckle like She actually knows a little bit about what pain is like. But honestly, until this point, she's been really isolated from any kind of trauma. Like she is this magically sunny, cheerful girl. You know, I think she has had a really charmed, blessed life. And I think that is why she likes him. You know, the the second clip I want to play is like a little bit longer. It's when they're slow dancing um, at the party the second time. And he tells her that he loves her. Mm -hmm. And her reaction, I think is genuine, but I think there's something in her that is like, this is the most exciting thing that has ever happened in her perfect life. Like every little bump in the road has been smoothed out for her. You know, it's boring, but it's wonderful and fun. And her friends are fun. Everything is easy. And suddenly this guy shows up and he's more troubled than anybody she's ever met. He's a little bit more damaged. He loves her. And she suddenly goes from, I think being this like lovely mannequin to feeling like an actual woman. And you can hear that in her.
2: Bring uh, any bells for Rebel Without a Cause?
1: Oh my God! But I do think
2: Elizabeth Taylor is better at it. <laughs> Wait. I do too. I do too. I, actually, I, I I I I do too. But that is exactly the same kind of like oh, this is the person I'm looking for. You know, it, it's. It's almost like a different version of Taming of the Shrew. It's like, she doesn't need to be tamed. It's like, but what she really needs is a guy who's a little bit more rough and tumble. You know, like, you know, like, like, you know, like there's a there's an energy there. It's like oh, these these women who are kept, you know, in this house and they, you know, it's, it's interesting. I love you.
4: I've loved you since the first moment I saw you. I guess maybe I even loved you before I saw you. You're the fellow that wondered why I invited you here tonight. I'll tell you why. I love Are they watching us? I love you, too. It scares me. But it is a wonderful feeling. It's wonderful when you're here. I can hold you. I can, I can see you. I can hold you next to me. Well, what's it going to be like next week? All summer long, I'll still be just as much in love with you. You'll be gone. But I'll be at the lake. You'll come up and see me. Oh, it's so beautiful there. You must come. I know my parents will be a problem. But you can come on the weekends when the kids from school are up there. You don't have to work weekends. That's the best time. If you don't come, I'll drive down here to see you. I'll pick you up outside the factory. You'll be my pickup. Oh, we'll arrange it somehow. Whatever way we can. We'll have such wonderful times together. Just the two of us. You'll be
2: the
4: happiest person in the world. This big happiest. Oh, well, if I can only tell you how much I love you. If I can only tell you all. Tell Mama. Tell
1: mama. Now, I want to stick up a little bit for her character, because I think there's a way of looking at her character that you're just like, oh, she's the face of beautiful privilege. You know, she, I mean, she's mm-hmm. always wearing white for one thing, mm-hmm. up until the very last scene when she's in all black for deliver reasons. It, but there's I think this girl actually has more courage than anybody is giving her credit for. You know, like She. She is picking out a guy who's not like super wealthy, you know, doesn't seem yet like he might be necessarily that wealthy. And she's insisting on still bringing him around her friends and she's not shy about it and she's not trying to hide him. And she does not seem subject to peer pressure from her parents, from them. I think she has a core of what she really wants. And I think she's choosing him really naively. Like, my God, I remember being 17 and like anybody troubled just seemed fascinating. And exactly. I'm so glad I got out of that. Yes. But I think she has convictions and she'll probably mature into different and better convictions. But I, I don't think that she's a charming non-entity. I think she's actually got some backbone.
2: I, I feel like she's got the same amount of backbone as guess who's coming to dinner. The, um, the, the, this, the mm-hmm. character there. The like, kind of naive
1: the, backbone where it's like yes. easy to have backbone because you really don't believe there's problems in life.
2: Yeah. I, and, and, and I don't, but I don't, I'm not saying that like, well, she's got, that's youth. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. That's, again, I there's something really fun about this movie because it's It's a hard thing to kind of parse. Everyone thinks that they're doing everything for the right reasons. But I think when you pull it back a little bit, you can be like, oh, this is interesting. Well, what's this underneath the surface? Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me because Mike Nichols said that, you know, it's one of his favorite films and he's watched it over 50 times and it was the basis or he used this, as an inspiration point for the graduate. And we talked about how Paul Thomas Anderson has used the inspiration point of *Treasure Sierra Madre uh, for um, There Will Be Blood. I think that you can see some elements of the graduate in this, and, and it's a different story. It's like, here's a relationship here. You know, it, it, it's it got similar themes going on and, and why are they together and, and why are they not and um, what people want and what they're looking for. I mean, clearly... You have Dustin Hoffman who has a he's trying to fill a hole and then he kind of does fill his hole and uh fitting in and and I don't know. There I I I like these two films holding hands in a way. It's a really uh it's a really interesting I think they're two very interesting stories, maybe one a little bit more grounded and a less tragic, and one more um more about the confusion of of youth and and trying to fit in and trying to be who you're supposed to be versus who you wanna be. There's a lot there. I think there's a lot in these two movies.
1: Oh, I mean, I like the idea of this film supplanting The Graduate in everybody's heart.
2: Um, By the way, I don't, I don't mind that because I think this movie, I do think this movie is lays DNA that we. I always say to you, or we talk about this, going like, "Well, who did it better? This may have done it first, but who did it better? This one still holds up. This one did it better." I mean, if you told me I could only watch two movies now, I'd probably lean towards Mike Nichols because I love Mike Nichols and I love comedies. Uh, but this is, I think, uh, a better movie. I'm going to say it's a better movie. I'm going to say it's a better movie. I'm just going to right now go out and say, I think this is a better movie.
1: <laughs> I will let you stay on my vote. I will let you stay on my vote. Mm. Um, I actually want to play a little clip um, since we're talking about like the chemistry between Liz and Montgomery, mm-hmm. which I think is genuine and, and good. You well, know, they I mean, were
2: in love in real life too, they right?
1: Were so, I mean, gosh, there's like a thousand different stories on it. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, Well, she
2: like wanted to maybe run away at one point with from her husband. And she's like, you got to tell him. And Montgomery was like, eh, check, please. Like, right. I mean, that's (laughs) like, that's, that's kind of like the story that I had heard that like they were, they were really into it. And then he kind of pulled away from it.
1: Yeah. I mean, gosh, I've heard like 90,000 stories and they all seem a little bit contradictory. Um, But one of them is that like. You know, they meet meet because they're set up to go on this like date to a Hollywood premiere Mm -hmm. because they're both just like super beautiful and they want to like make a splash and add some publicity to this film. And it's kind of awkward and neither one really wants to be on this date. And it's apparently the first time that Montgomery Cliff has ever worn a tuxedo. But that something in them really clicks, which is interesting because they're at this point almost raised like two different species of actor. You know, like Montgomery Cliff is this guy who's like been on the Broadway stage since he was really young and he's very serious about like his talent and his ability and like being like a real genuine actor, actor, actor with like a capital A, figuring out a new type of acting. And Elizabeth Taylor came out of the studio system where she'd just been like acting since she was a baby Being really pretty and her whole acting style until this point had just been like, you walk to your mark and you say your line. You know, nobody had ever tried to engage with her as an artist. She was just a really beautiful teenage girl. And yet they really connect, you know. And so it's weird, like in some stories, they're in love. In other stories, he is not that interested in women, but she's pining after him. In other stories, they're just like best friends that last forever forever. It's really hard to tell, but, like, I don't know. Here's Liz talking about one of their kisses on screen, which she says was actually, like, her like second kiss, maybe, of all time. The timing
3: was particularly fortuitous for me because I'd only received my real kiss in real life two weeks before. <laughs> uh, it would have been really embarrassing if my first Kiss had been on screen, not in real life. Anyway, uh, my kiss with Monty was much more exciting and uh, it just happened. There was no direction. I wasn't told what to do. I just did, I kissed him instinctively.
2: Not to double down on clips, But I want to talk about this moment that I think is really articulated by Richard Gere as they ask him like, what is your favorite love scene? The dancing kiss, it's not a lovemaking scene, but it's just the most unbelievably beautiful,
0: committed moment of a man and a woman connecting. Montgomery Clifton and Elizabeth Taylor. Wow, incredible scene. I saw it again fairly recently and it was just still the biggest close-ups, I think, in the history of cinema. they just, just seeing into these two souls, and they obviously loved each other. You know, those, those two actors loved each other, and they were wide open with each other. They obviously were friends and connected on a deep soul level. Right. Not necessarily on a sexual level, but yeah. a
2: deep soul level. I think that's what you were seeing in the eyes. It transcended um, a sexual surface to it. It was deeper than that. By the way, I feel that, what he's talking about. I feel what there is passion. I think that that's what this movie is. It's passion. It's it's a crime of passion. It's a love of passion. It's a passion to succeed. It's a it's in a time where I feel like uh you know we are people are trying to get ahead. I mean, we're always trying to get ahead, but I feel like this is like coming up in a lot of different media at this time. You know, what what is success? What is the American dream? What is right? What is, you know, what is the right car to drive? Keeping up with the Joneses—that kind of idea.
1: I think of the '50s sometimes as being kind of like a phony decade, or everybody put on their best face. But a movie like this, and an actor like Montgomery Cliff, also makes me try to frame it in like, who were the truth seekers, who were looking for something real in a in a you know in a decade that I think had a pretty face painted on it. And in a way, because we never get the full 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 arc of Montgomery Cliff and what he could have done and wanted to do in Hollywood. It's almost interesting to look at it then through Elizabeth Taylor, you know, somebody who was raised to be pretty phony on screen Mm -hmm. and then winds up blossoming out of it. I mean, the Elizabeth Taylor here to the Elizabeth Taylor of speaking of my nickels of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, those feel like two different actors, you know, or really, even if we compare this like the Elizabeth Taylor of like the film right before, you know, father of the bride. Yeah. yeah. Like that that's two different styles, two different ways of just like carrying yourself on screen.
2: Absolutely. But would would you argue that maybe Elizabeth Taylor is Montgomery Cliff's character? The Elizabeth Taylor, the actress, is Montgomery because she's always falling in love, whether it was that truck driver that she, you know, married, whether it was these passionate affairs with Burton, whether it was like, you know, she had this, I love them. And now I'm not with them and tumultuous. <laughs> and, you know, there there is something about her living a life like this. You know, this, this everything and then nothing and then back and excess. And, you know, there is something interesting about that. You know, this push and pull of like, what will make me happy? And maybe it's the unexamined life that is making them unhappy.
1: You know, I love that. And it makes me wonder why we don't give her... Or really, most female actors have enough credit for being like deep, passionate, crazy people the way we talk about, like Dean yeah. and Cliff and Brando. I mean, she would say that working on this movie with Cliff is how she became the Elizabeth Taylor who actually could act. You know that he really showed her what acting could be.
3: I will always love Mommy. Uh, we got along as friends, and then as actors, and for the first time in my life i started to take acting seriously because my leading men before had been dogs and horses and this was my first leading man and my first real actor i thought wait a minute what's he doing and i started to listen and realized that it was more than just cut. Make some lines you'd learned the Mm -hmm. night before, hit your mark, that it was something that could make this man shake from head to toe with emotion. And I thought, I've got to find out what it is inside him that moves him so completely emotionally that can get him to that state as George Eastman, not Montgomery Cliff, to make the sweat literally come out on his body, to make his eyes actually fill with tears. And I would listen to George's direction on a totally different level than I had other directors and began to understand the reasons they had for certain directions and i think that's when i first began to act
1: okay so now i kind of want to come out and talk about like an elephant in the room which is in a way like the Shelley winters that you were talking about earlier you know the kind of sctv joke yeah and The way that Elizabeth Taylor kind of turns into that too, I think, you know, Elizabeth Taylor becomes almost like a a mockery of herself. And the two women, I think, do something really interesting, which is, I mean, there's no real nice way to say it. They both decide to be women who gain a lot of weight and like are Mm going to carry on anyways and live large and be in the public eye and be unrepentant and kind of seem like they're living their life on their own terms. And I never really put it together before so much, but I feel like both Liz Taylor and Shelley Winters kind of lived their career as like a fuck you to this period in Hollywood. Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah. Well, like, I th- they yeah, were well, molded. They were molded. Elizabeth Taylor was molded to be beautiful. And Shelley Winters up until this film had also been molded to be beautiful. Like she was supposed to be the funny Marilyn Monroe. You know, she was this like blonde bombshell type, really curvaceous. And so she was basically supposed to be like Marilyn Monroe who would take a pie in the face. You know, right.
2: I mean, I think you you we we should throw Grace Kelly into this as well, right? <laughs> at, to a certain degree, like you know, she didn't didn't live life large, but was sort of like, and I'm out, yeah. like I don't care, Novak I don't care. too. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like, it, there is like these, there are these women who they didn't let the Hollywood system like eat them up and spit them out. Like they had like they have a presence. Like when you look at Shelly Winters on Roseanne as Roseanne's mom, and that's if you're if you remember that, like you know. Oh, did
1: I pull a clip of that?
2: Yes, I did. Here it uh, is.
1: Now I
5: think I got it. You married Dan's father. uh, And Dan is married to my granddaughter. So that makes your baby nothing to me.
2: You know, it's it's like they are living life on their own terms. And to a certain extent, like, I think I think that Liz Taylor is uh, crazy or was crazy. Uh, But, you know but also like didn't give a fuck. And I think that there's like a Mm -hmm. fun energy of that I think, especially when we hear these stories about like, oh, these women just get eaten up and spit out by Hollywood. Like you're the hot ingenue. And then, you know, what happened to that? Where are the Gretchen moles, you know, of our world that these come in and come out. And, uh, and I love that all these women had everything could have continued everything the way they wanted, but they just kind of just kind of did different things. They made different choices.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the don't give a fuckness that I think really makes them <laughs> legends to me. I mean, Shelly Winter is like, she wasn't even considered for this part. She really wanted it. She was like, I can't act. I'm sick of like being the Marilyn Monroe who will take a pie to the face. And so she got this part by like convincing George Stevens to meet her. She met him at the LA Athletic Club, which is like the number one thing I'm dying to get back to when we can actually go to things and yeah. I can get back into Aqua Zumba. But um, she met him at the LA Athletic Club. And before she got there, she dyed her hair brown, and she took off her nail polish, and she showed up, and she sat in the corner of the room, and she just tried to look really pathetic. And she watched George Stevens come in and look for her, and he didn't see her, and he was looking at his watch, and he kept wandering around, and he was about to take off again. And then she finally was like, okay, I'm here. And when the movie was done, and everybody had this new image of Shelley Winters being like, oh, Shelley Winters can look like that? What? Like, Shelley Winters can be like this? I mean, even. Like even her studio boss, like the president of Universal was like, if I had known that he was going to make you look like that, I would not have let you do the picture.
2: Well, but then she's mad because he does make her look like that, right? Like she wants the part so bad. And she's like, oh, well, you made me look ugly next to Elizabeth Taylor. I have to say, I think Shelley Winters looks beautiful in this movie. I love the way she looks. I mean, I think that there's something Liz Taylor is glammed. And Shelly Winters is real. I, I don't know. I, I found her to be really, uh, really pretty. Uh, but, you know, but she I think was really. she is
1: pretty. I think she can be. But like, I mean, it's almost not fair to be like, are you going to pick between me and Elizabeth Taylor? Like, that's just brutal yeah. for any girl. to. It's like throwing yourself in a grenade. I mean, the story I heard that like George Stevens was like. She was complaining because she was like, man, you even let Elizabeth Taylor have a white convertible Cadillac. Like, she just gets everything in this movie. And I'm, like, trudging around in these shoes. And so when the film was over, he bought her a white convertible Cadillac. He was like, you can have it now.
0: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
6: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: So have you ever seen to me what I think is like the most infamous Shelley Winters uh, clip of all time? No. <laughs> okay. Because Shelly Winters, you know, she goes on to like be the woman who would just say whatever the fuck she ever wanted to like mm-hmm. on TV. She which was a like brilliant
2: oh. casting for Roseanne.
1: Yeah. yeah. She was like, I'll tell you who I who I slept with. I don't care. Here. I slept with this guy. I slept with this guy. I'll tell you everything. Um, but so she goes on to Johnny Carson one mm-hmm. day and um, she's sitting on the couch and she had by the by this time done what Liz had done, which is like take up wearing the most gigantic insane caftans of all time. And she was just a total caftan goddess. And so she's sitting there on the couch next to Oliver Reed. Do you know Oliver Reed?
2: Yes, like, of course. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah drunken, gigantic, um, machismo type of actor. Um, and she gets up to leave because she's supposed to make it to like, I think, a play. She's supposed to be in a play that night. So she's like, all right, I'll see you later. And Oliver Reed starts going on about feminism and how dumb feminism is. And what you're going to hear in this clip is him going on and on about feminism. And then she comes in. And she takes a drink, and she pours it on his head, and then she exits. Uh,
0: the women in England are quite good. They're always in the kitchen, so you can't hear them when they shout. You think that's what they should do? Right? I think I think that most women. I think that most women are very happy. I, I really think that most women are happy in the kitchen, not because uh, they like. Ah, sh- oh, men make the best chefs. <laughs> When do you ever go to a hotel and find the sh- the chef is a woman, madam.
2: <laughs> I think Shakespeare
0: they, wasn't a bird, madam. <laughs> and neither's Johnny Coulton. I think if they paid women in the kitchen as much as they pay chefs in a hotel, the think women would have to that, be in the I, kitchen. Yeah, but it's fairly sweet. I mean, the women's liberationists, if they thought about that. Shh. Quiet, woman? Women's liberationists. I think, that, I think that women's liberation. Is-
1: anyway, I'm just saying, Shelley Winters, absolute fucking hero.
2: Yeah, I love all the actors in this movie. I mean, they, they. This is a fun movie to talk about and break down because it is so complex, and it's a shame to think that you know Montgomery Clift is like, oh, you're you're not really a good director, you're a craftsman. But then you hear like Liz Taylor talk about her experience about making this movie, and it sounds incredibly. Uh, unique and improvisational. And and I'm like, well, what's the disconnect here? And I don't know if the disconnect is uh, Montgomery Cliff felt like he didn't have enough power over his final performance. Some, sometimes I feel like there are actors like James Dean, we talked about his relationship with the director where he was, they would really go and, and tape a long time and everyone else on the set was like, oh, what are we shooting? But James Dean was like, I'm getting to a spot. And on this one, it feels like my gut is that Montgomery Cliff feels like, I have something I wanna do and you're breaking me of that habit because here, I'll just read you the quote. Um, uh, oh, actually, this is a quote from Shelley Winters. He goes, you know, he would discuss the scene, but not the lines. And he would photograph the second or third rehearsal. So the scene had this improvisational quality to it. And then he would print the first take and then spend the next three hours minutely rehearsing the scene. And then he would film it again. And he explained to me that in that way, he often got actors unplanned reactions that were spontaneous and human and often exactly right, uh, rather than getting this over-intellectualized plan of their reactions that aren't as good. And, you know, something coming, the thing about like Monk Armie Cliff coming from stage, like, you know, yes, you're keeping it alive, but it is perfecting and and, and honing in. And there might've been something that was really dangerous to him about feeling caught. And, and this movie requires him to do so many pivots. I mean, from, the first scene at the house to this, the love scenes to the killing scene to the trial scene. Like he is turning on a dime and, and it all feels right. Uh, but I, I, I'm I, curious, like here's a director that we, I feel like he kind of gets it in this movie or does it to the best way. And and even in this way where he's capturing these great performances and, and launching Elizabeth Taylor into the stratosphere as being an adult actress, you know, uh, out of the, you know, American Splendor model. We have like, uh, ah, yeah, he wasn't that great. He he didn't do it the best way. And um and it makes me bummed out because well, what else could he have done? What else could he have done? Yeah, see so maybe he directed Chili Winters not to be so sympathetic, but to your point, maybe that makes the movie more complex. I I, I you know it, it's yeah. it's it's tricky. It's it makes me feel bad that this guy never quite got the accolades, even though he's his movies are out there. Like they're, they are I think all of them balance on the precipice except for this one, which I think is a little bit more of a no-brainer.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, it sounds like Montgomery Cliff is just the kind of actor who wanted to run. You know, Mm -hmm. and George Stevens was more methodical in how he wanted there to be free play. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I'm listening to this book about like the Showtime Lakers and now I'm just like in my head, I'm just like thinking about different basketball plays and Magic Johnson being mad. Complete tangent. Anyways, but you know, what I think is great about Stevens, and my gosh, when we're talking about something from swing time up until like now, until A Place in the Sun, you know, a director who understood the mechanics of film from a silent director perspective, you know, which is something that, you know, Montgomery Cliff was a baby. Like, he doesn't get it so much. I think when you hear how George Stevens liked to work, I think he tried to remember that film should work as a silent medium as well. Right. You know, like he had a silent visual technique. Like he would make his actors do a scene without any lines at all and try to make it so they would have to communicate through their body language and through the way they looked at each other to try to make sure that registered. And it showed up. I mean, Charlie Chaplin said that he thought this movie was the greatest movie he'd ever seen about America. You know, that Chaplin was kind of like looking into this and Chaplin being a person who liked to criticize, you know, this country and was obviously drawn to something like this, that Chaplin really liked the way he staged it. I think Stevens has a real visual style. I mean, he uses close-ups in this film like he's stabbing you. You know, like whenever Mm. he uses a close-up, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Like he shoots Elizabeth Taylor in a different way than he shoots everybody else. He's like, look, make her look heavenly. Shoot her in this way. Bring her face so close that you are in love with her, that you cannot resist her, that you cannot resist Montgomery Cliff. Like he's controlling the audience with the camera. In fact, I kind of want to play, uh, let's do this. We haven't talked about like a couple of the major scenes which we should, we have to do before we wrap up. One of them I want to talk about is the abortion scene. Cause I have a clip of Shelly talking about how he directed her through it and how she thought he was crazy and how she came around, you know? So first let's just listen to it. And as kind of a setup, here she is, she's pregnant. She's, she's lying to this doctor twice. First she's lying and saying she's married. Then she's lying and saying that she's been ditched. It, the truth is, is that like Montgomery Cliff is waiting outside in a car but she's trying any way she can to get an abortion without coming out and saying that word. Which I'm not even sure you could still you could say it.
2: She was which I which I love it. Yeah, is yeah. done
1: through inference. Oh, will I do. Somebody's got to help me,
3: Miss Hamilton. My advice is go home and see your parents and tell them. It'll be much better that way. I assure you. So if you come here to place yourself under my professional care during your pregnancy, I'll do everything to ensure your health and that of your child. On the other hand, if you've just come for free advice on material and financial problems, which I can't help you. No, I cannot help you.
1: And, and now let's listen to her talk about it. And the story that she's going to tell is that the first time they shot the scene, she cried the whole way and thought she nailed it. And then George Stevens was like, no, I want to do it again. Mm. I'm thinking, I was fantastic. I cried
5: the whole nine minutes. And he said that we're going to print it. And now I want you not to cry. He said, yeah, we'll print both and you'll see them, Shelley. They can do things like that. I don't even think they let, like the actors to go to uh, rushes these days. You know, rushes are what the daily work of the film. And I saw them both. And he looked at me. And he said, which do you think are the best? It's the best one. And I had to say, the one where I don't cry. And he said, your job as an actress is to make the audience cry. And I've seen that film all over the world in theaters. And in and in every time you see that scene, all the men in the audience go, oh, God. And every
2: woman cried.
1: So I guess I'd say, I think Shelley thought he was a great director. And I yeah, well, want to like go that. with Shelley. I think I want to go with Shelley on this one.
2: I, I think I do, too. Um, I, I, I also want to like talk about something that, it it seems like an afterthought now, um, because you know this movie takes a turn in the third act and it becomes it becomes a court case and all of a sudden I'm like, motherfucker, you you made this is Perry Mason you and I'm like that's Raymond Burr like this movie spun off Ironside Perry Mason. I mean, it, it, I was blown away. I was like, oh, did they just like how is this not physically connected? It's the same. I mean, the cane and iron, like it was like I was kind of blown (laughs) away by like what a lift it was. Like this is clearly everyone's like, oh, he was great in that movie. And they just made a whole show around him because that is a Perry Mason case. We see a Perry Mason case.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And yet the thing that seems like it's on trial is like, is he guilty of murder in a court? And is he guilty of murder morally in his heart? As as he says it. And that seems like a thing that even after he's found guilty in a court, he's not sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that scene where he talks to a priest before he, I, very late in the game for the spoiler alert, gets executed for murdering uh, Shelley Winters. Mm-hmm. I think this scene's incredibly emotional. What do you think?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the performance on, on trial here, when he, when he takes the stand... Uh, there's so much there. I mean, ending with the moment where he writes his mother and says, I'm convicted yeah. by the way, that speaks volumes about their relationship. Yeah. As well. That's just one uh,
1: sentence. Yeah.
2: Uh, it, like, but like watching him tell the story, I'm literally watching and going, did I misread the situation? Did it actually happen like that? Or did he, re-? like, we don't know what happened. We know what his intent was, but did he, did he change his mind? Did he, like, I don't know. He convinced me to be que- to question it, I which mean, is crazy.
1: I feel so naive, but I kind of believe him. By the way, this plus Sunrise, I think everybody out there, do not get on a boat with a guy who you don't think is in love with you. If you're not sure he's that into you, do a not rowboat. get onto a rowboat with this man. Hey,
2: look, we can talk about that in real life, too. Robert Wagner. Hello, Natalie Ooh. Wood, your favorite actress. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, I think he meant to kill her. Boat.
1: And then I think I do think he changes mind because he's sitting down and he's trying to get her to sit down. And then I think he was like, well, maybe and then I think he chooses not to save her. And I, it, so it's like, is choosing not to save her?
2: Well, she does get up, right? Like I was mm-hmm. expecting him to hit that herder, hit her with the oar. And that's what, you know, what Perry Mason does in that scene. He yeah. says like, you hit he's, her with the oar and he, he did it. He definitely wrong. doesn't. Yeah. He's yeah, wrong. Perry
1: Mason is wrong.
2: And, and I thought that was interesting. And And then I, then I was like, okay, well, if that is true, if that is true, maybe the boat gave her, cause we know that the boat hit her on the head. Or she has, she has a mark that something hit her on the head and you could, you could buy the idea that the boat hit her on the head. She went unconscious. She may have gone down and he couldn't save her or, but now the mistake that he made was not telling anybody. And
1: it was dark. And yeah. Yes.
2: Like he did go there to do all this stuff. Uh, It's tricky. It's a tricky, it's a tricky proposition. Um,
1: no, okay, let me ask you something about that scene. Let's listen to the music as he's debating whether or not to kill her. Do you hear the tiniest bit of what might become the Jaws theme? so lonely here. Like we
4: were the only two people left in the whole world. Maybe we are. Maybe when we get back to shore, everybody else will have disappeared. I'd like that, wouldn't you? And we could go anywhere we wanted. We could live in the biggest house in the world. If we Only I'd like to live in a little house. Just big enough for the two of us. Only there's going to be more than two of us, isn't it?
2: Ooh, that's interesting, Amy. I like that. Look, just John Williams. Diast. Yeah, just the, I, I get that.
1: Okay, then can I ask you another sound question? Sure. What is up in this movie with the fact that his guilty conscience is represented through dog barks? Listen to all of these barking Ooh, dogs yeah. from different dogs once he kills or lets die.
5: is around
4: no she isn't i think she's out playing
2: tennis i love that well there's i mean the sound design in this movie again this movie looks beautiful like it really looks unbelievably beautiful and i think it's an interesting choice that they chose not to shoot it in color too because i think this movie actually is better in black and white and let's continue to talk about sounds you know that idea like when he is freaking out about maybe being caught for murder did you hear those like dive bombers? These are German Stuka dive bombers that, that were used to intensify the engine sounds uh, of the motorboat when he was in that scene. So like he's pushing these things because that was a that is an intense scene that like, the motorboat is so loud and you hear the radio so low. So like Stevens is doing some cool stuff.
1: Whoa! I didn't even hear that. That's so cool.
2: Yeah, it was really, uh, really interesting. But I want to just follow up on the question I asked. Did you, because I couldn't find any research in here. Did any, has any, I mean, of course people have talked about it, but was it like a full rip to make Raymond Burr Perry Mason after this? I mean, it like, is there any, I I couldn't, no one's talking about that in the research that I saw, but I'm like, it's so clearly Perry Mason.
1: I have no idea. Who are the Perry Mason heads at? Who's going to, who's going to tell us? What is it? Is it the Perry Masonics? What do you call a Perry Mason? Well, I mean,
2: like Perry Mason comes out in 1957. Right, and I and it just seems like someone just stole this idea. Well, Perry Mason is based on a series of books that date back to the '30s. Okay, okay. So that's like an existing, you know, detective character. But that doesn't mean that the producers didn't see this movie and think, "Whoa, right? Let's Let's put these these two two things right." Okay, exactly. Thank you, Devin, for that. Uh, I mean, that
1: makes me wonder, because you know what else happened in 1957 is 12 Angry Men. Maybe there was kind of this like, ooh, we like legal stuff, because 12 Angry Men, of course, like turned into its own legal TV show. Yeah. So maybe there was this hunger. Maybe legal was the trend. Maybe it was like the 90s. Well,
2: I think the thing that I thought was that Ironside came first, but of course it didn't, Um because like the idea that like, you know, Raymond Burr has a cane here and he's he kind of limping around and, and that's what Ironside is, you know, uh, to a certain degree. And I guess it's hard. Like when you see somebody play a, a lawyer and a lawyer and a lawyer, you're like, well, they're the same character because that's the same face and that's the same time. And but uh, I just thought it was I mean, I, I guess it's a no brainer as far as casting. You go, here's a guy who is, you know, great in the scene. Let's make a whole series around him and we'll take this other property and it'll all work.
1: That's true. But it does make it even more fun that he's the villain in Rear Window.
2: Oh yes, right. I forgot about that too. Um, <laughs> I mean, Amy, we've talked so much about this film and, and I, I think it's actually a really interesting way to go about it. I mean, I know that there's a, a lot of talk about maybe this movie is a little bit over dramatic or melodramatic, um, and you know, no one's really made a redo of it, but I, I would argue that everyone's made a redo of it. I I feel like, you know, this is this is a tenant of everything. Like what was the reaction when this comes out?
1: I mean, rhapsodic this film wins like six oscars it gets the very first ever golden globe for drama
2: um and by the way it was held you know that they shot this movie in 49 but because sunset boulevard was what there was going to be their oscar movie for that year they held it back a year just to get another shot at the oscars and rightly so it seems like
1: and montgomery cliff was actually up for that lead part in um sunset boulevard and he turned it down
2: Wow. Can you imagine what a
1: different film that would be with him?
2: By the way, that's a very similar story, isn't it?
1: hmm Yeah. Wow. What are his intentions? Who is this young man? What does yeah. he want with things? Um, but if you have not seen From Here to Eternity, do you want Montgomery Cliff talking about the trumpet incessantly? I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. But no, I had to struggle to find any sort of a negative review. And the most I could find was kind of wishy-washy. It was just from Newsweek. And it was written by a person who was just a fan of the original book. And it said, ahem. <clears throat> This new adaptation is not the social indictment that Theodore Dreiser had in mind when he wrote his famous novel in 1925. His hero, Clyde Griffiths, here called George Eastman, is presented to the audience in full manhood. As a result, both the film and the character lose significance. Considering the fact that George is negative and maybe a diffident, even dull version of the Horatio Alger hero gone wrong, certainly not what Dreiser had in mind, Montgomery Cliff turned in a thoughtful and intelligent performance. But this review does not seem that swayed. It's basically like it didn't live up to the book, and that's really his only point. He doesn't really prove it. It's like, I haven't read the book, so maybe he's right. But I do think that the tragedy, to me, I think the tragedy of this movie gets more interesting if you want to believe that George Eastman means everything he says and he's just caught up in the moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's and then I think those are the most dangerous people.
1: Yeah, because they can justify it, too.
2: Yes, exactly. And that and I think that, you know, to kind of circle back to my original point about him, I think that's the most dangerous kind of a person because they don't know what they're doing is wrong. And I think that's what I feel from this character is this character is reckless, reckless without using a condom, reckless with breaking people's hearts, reckless with uh, obviously just immediately considering murder, you know? um, And uh, yeah. And I almost, I almost think he doesn't have the courage of his conviction to break up with her. And that's also makes me feel like that's reckless too. Like I would respect this character 10 times more if he said, you know what? I'm not marrying you. I'm not in love with you. Goodbye. Uh, You know, and then she comes back and he's like, I got to get rid of her. I mean, again, murder is not the way. I'm not saying murder is the way. I'm just saying, but like, there is something even spineless about him not even being able to admit this to her. You yeah. know, but he's so afraid to, you know.
1: I mean, the whole thing feels like a tragedy that didn't have to happen because honestly, I feel like if they had shown up to the marriage bureau and it was open because it wasn't the holiday, mm-hmm. he would have married her. I think Absolutely. he would have married her. And I don't Absolutely. know what he would have done the next day, but I think he would have married her. And so there is something just so unplanned and miserable about the whole, about the whole.
2: Yeah. Film, these are just, miserable people, miserable, miserable people. Uh,
1: and I love them. And you know, what? I love them. I might,
2: I would, I,
1: I would maybe keep this instead of a little
2: that cause. Look, I, I think I would too. I think I would too. I, I mean, let's go, would we put it in, would we send it to the aliens? I like, I'll just jump in first and go like, I mean, you've heard me, you've heard me use my, you know, the thing I don't often say, which is it slaps. Uh, I mean, there, there is something about this movie that I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm high on this movie right now. Uh, and I I feel like it encompasses a lot of different things that we really love. I think it does a great job. It also answers some questions for other films. There's something about this that I I am, uh, I'm, I'm into, I, I like this movie.
1: I am infatuated with this movie, very much. I'm like, I, I, will, it, I, I will murder other movies
2: for this movie. And I think it actually illuminates something about uh, our our culture that is still true to this day. Yeah. You I know, mean, it really is. I see is.
1: myself so much in him and in Shelley Winters. I don't know I if mean, any human sees himself in Elizabeth Taylor. She's just so great.
2: But I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there is something. I mean, I just I was thinking about this, too. It's like. I mean, this is old, but it's like, it's Scott Peterson. It's all these stories Mm -hmm. that we hear. It's, you know, NBC, MSNBC has, you know, made a career. That guy who, you know, uh, what's the guy with the white hair who does, uh, you know, uh, who wears jeans and has white hair that Bill Hader used to do on SNL. That MSNBC reporter. Anderson Cooper? No, it's like he's like an older white dude reporter on MSNBC. Um, Oh, gosh. People know what I'm talking about. Like he's made his whole career basically doing episodes of places in the place in the sun. I mean that like of real life. It's crazy. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, well,
1: I'm curious to know what everybody else makes of this movie. I mean that 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 the AFI cut this from the new list and left on a bunch of
2: crap. Yeah, I find I
1: find a little bit shocking. Like I do too. Kill the other George Stevenses before you kill this guy.
2: I agree. I mean, I would put this on the list over Shane Mm -hmm. and Swing Time easily oh, for sure. that's yeah. a that's a boom 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 this has been fascinating and amy uh i think we're gonna get into some more complicated relationships because what if you didn't have to kill somebody but you could just erase them from your mind Ooh. and that is the premise of eternal sunshine of a spotless mind which is next week's film take a listen to the trailer
0: hello I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss.
2: That is, of course, available wherever you can get your streaming movies or library, wherever you want to go. Uh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I haven't seen it in such a long time. I'm excited to see it again.
1: Me too. I haven't seen it in forever. I've been dying to do this one. Dying, 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 dying. Ever since we are going to blaze our own path. I cannot wait.
2: All right. Well, this is great. Uh, Amy, a pleasure as always. We will see you next week for Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. And let us know what you think. Is Amy naive? Am I too cynical? Uh, I want to see what the the thought is on the board. Uh, And make sure that you uh, check out uh, us on Twitch because now we want to announce that we will be doing... A live screen test on the 16th of February. So make sure you, if you didn't watch the first one, it was so much fun and we'll be back for more there. Uh, Amy, talk to you soon.
4: (laughs) Bye.